This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Well, whether there was a murder, I don't know. I wasn't there. I was busy visiting a friend in jail. There were just two women on the scene at the time. And neither one of them saw a thing. Both of them were wearing veils. They said it was a natural situation. He reached too high and tumbled back to the ground. You know what they say about being nice to the right people on the way up? You might meet him again on your way back down. But it's too late to bring him back. Too late, too late, too late, too late to bring him back. This is Pod Dylan that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I am your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about Too Late slash Foot of Pride is the pioneer of Bob Dylan studies, author of Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan, now back in print, Michael Gray. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. This is really quite an honor. Go ahead. <laughs> uh yeah your book song and dance man was one of the first books i ever remember reading when i was getting into bob and wanting to go outside of just the songs you know wanting to read more about him and read articles and books and so i remember uh, reading your book at the time and uh, as we know it said it's back in print and uh, so now normally everyone knows of the show this would be the point where i ask how you became a fan of bob sort of the standard intro question but First of all, anyone who listens to the show knows who you are already. They're familiar with you. And you've been answering all those kinds of questions over on Craig's podcast as well. So I thought we would jump right into the song, which, of course, everybody knows is Too Late slash Foot of Pride. We'll get into the discussion of like when it became one song and it morphed into another. But of all the songs in Bob's canon, why did you want to talk about this one? I love this song. Uh, It's such a recent so it emerged so recently, you know, compared to compared to everything else. I mean, some of the outtakes from Infidels uh, have been around forever. Uh, Blind William McTell, for example, has uh, been around so long that so for so many years that uh, when I first heard it, I uh, had time to go and write a whole book about Blind William McTell because <laughs> you know the the first thing that was prompted me was. Uh, who is blind Willie McTell? And when I looked into that, there was such an extraordinary lack of information about him that I wanted to find out more. And in the end, I realized there was no biography of him, even though he was this great pre-war blues artist, uh, certainly the best to come out of Georgia, USA. And, you know, my book was published in 2007 in the UK, 2009 in the USA, and so, uh, you know, I'd done research on it since the beginning of uh, 1999, I think. And so, uh, you know, outtakes like that we've had for donkey's years. But too late. I mean, it just emerged comparatively recently. Uh, and it was such a surprise to me because, uh, of course, it does morph into Foot of Pride. But uh, it seems to me very superior to, to Foot of Pride. Foot hmm. of Pride seems to me to be... A very basically a very gloomy song, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, with a great deal of sort of uh, wringing the hands and uh, Old Testament gloom. And uh, 
And, you know, I, uh, I appreciated the way that Lou Reed performed it at the so-called 30th anniversary bash, mm-hmm. which I was thinking about this morning and was amazed and shocked to realize it's more than 30 years ago. Yep. Yep. I was there. Anyway, I was there for that. So anyway, <laughs> sorry. So anyway, foot of pride. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it was interesting, but, but, uh, I could understand why it was an outtake. Whereas hmm. this, too late. I mean, he's so alive on this. It should have been on the album. It would have been the next best song after Joker Man, in my hmm. opinion. Huh. All right. That's interesting. Cause I mean, most people, I remember at the time when Foot of Pride debuted on the bootleg series. Was that the first you had heard of Foot of Pride when it, when they came out? Or you were familiar with it on a bootleg form before that? I, I can't remember, but certainly, so I, I, you know, but by the time they had that Columbia thing and Lou Reed performed it, I was already very, very familiar with it. Sure. Gotcha. Cause I mean, I remember the reaction to most people uh, when Foot of Pride debuted this, they were blown away by it and they couldn't believe that it didn't make the record. I mean, it, cause, uh-huh. and I, I, it is very gloomy. <laughs> I agree with you on that. I love it because it is just so strange and, and it's so enigmatic with all these characters and we don't, not exactly sure what is going on. There seems to be some sort of, you know, horrible event in the first verse that everyone seems to be reacting to as the, the song goes on. Yeah. Uh, now I didn't know. And, and then of course, you know, we know about what happened to infidels and, and, and the fact that other albums were produced and he still left foot of pride behind. It just seems sort of an act of, I know, kind of yeah. just uh, a dereliction of duty almost to leave this in a vault somewhere. Oh, really? Well, of course, uh, it does tend to leave things behind. It was very unusual on uh, on Love and Theft that he resuscitated and released a version of Mississippi, mm-hmm. having recorded it for a previous album. Mm-hmm. Usually, if he if he's left it off, then he's left it off. It's gone. Yeah, Although, it's gone forever. <laughs> you know, in the case of Infidels, I mean, you know, uh, what's what's on or off the album doesn't necessarily get reflected on what he chooses to perform live. Right. Because, of course, he's performed Blind Willie McTell many, many, many times. Although, a kind of using the version the band produced, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the band's version has that sort of irritating, tell you one thing, nobody can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell. Bob's own exquisite recording of that doesn't do that at all. It's uh, it it's a much more uh, mature performance than his live one, in my opinion. But uh, but you know, I tend I tend to feel that he's uh, that he's better when he's not trying to rock too hard myself. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, we know now, um, the boot, you know, the springtime in New York set comes out and there's two takes of, uh, too late on it. And there's one alternate of foot of pride, but we know now from research, at least I know from reading Terry Gans's book, surviving in a ruthless world, that there are something like 46 vert, not full versions. Some are false starts. Some are, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I have not have privilege to hear them, but. What, so what is it about too well, late? Of, that, of, of, of what? Of of uh, of too late? Or some of combination of too late and foot of pride. Some, oh, right. you know. Oh, I, I didn't know that. And I was actually surprised to find that somebody thought Infidels was such a great album. It was worth the whole book. <laughs> but, but anyway, 
he must have done a very thorough job. But uh, I don't know. I mean, 46 outtakes, you know, usually an awful lot of them are just hardly have Bob on at all, if at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was at the Bob Dylan Center last month in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I listened to was outtakes from uh, Street Legal. <gasps> And uh, and there was nothing exciting there. I mean, I, it was oh. probably my fault. I probably asked for the wrong thing. I should have asked for the demos instead of which I asked for the outtakes. But anyway, most of them were just bass and drums, kind of going thumpity thump and giving up. Oh. There were uh, uh, there were very very few uh, cases where he actually sang a song. Oh my! As a street yeah. legal diehard, that is that is tantalizing to know that i'm sure that i'm sure that you know there there are other bits but uh I, i'm wow. not young and i'm not young enough to uh spend days listening to one <laughs> one set of stuff <laughs> well the, the reason i brought it up and by the way i, I enjoyed terry's book uh, uh quite a bit and the, oh, the reason the reason i bring it up is because i knew you said like 46 versions. Well, there's not, it's not going to be 46 complete takes of, of this song. It's going to be, as you say, false starts or the yeah. rhythm track or whatever. Yeah. I mean, everything has to be recorded and, and cataloged and stuff. But even if there's half that number, even if 23 of them are full versions, that seems very different than what we know of Bob's history, recording history. He doesn't seem to, do 20 versions of a song he gets five or six and if he can't get it he gives up so what do you think yeah. it is about this song that he uh, he obviously knew there was something there and he kept digging at it and of course he never got it to his satisfaction but that's unusual to have that many takes of any dylan song yes it is i mean i remember that there are a great many takes of uh like a rolling stone mm -hmm. and then they went back and chose what was it? Take six two, take two, I think something like that. So, you know, but, uh, but yeah, you're right. Generally, of course, he's, he hasn't got that much patience with these things. <laughs> I mean, do you think it's that, I mean, again, I'm trying to get you to figure out how Bob thinks, which is always a fool's errand. I know. I guess I that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, he, he must have known this was special. He had to know this was really a major work, uh, to keep, to keep plugging away at it, uh, especially well, again, must, it, you know, that it morphs from a different was. song. Yeah. Let's, let's put it that way. Right. Yeah. But, I'm uh, right. Uh, but too late. Uh, he's much more alive on that than, than on Foot of Pride, don't you think? Mm. He, uh, it just seems so youthful. Uh, and the chorus, the way he sings the chorus, the too late, too late, too late, too late. It's, it's great, you know. It's like uh, he suddenly, this young Bob Dylan sort of erupts out of uh, out of the careful, in my opinion, rather over careful work of of much of infidels. You know, mm -hmm. songs like um, "Man Thinks Because He Rules the World." Oh, "License to Kill." License to Kill. Yes. Uh, 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 too late. It's uh, it's so alive, as I say, and. Uh, and the lyric it seems to me to be much more relaxed and uh and complex in in the subjects it covers than uh, than foot of pride i mean uh you know that that first verse that you read out mm -hmm. i mean uh it's uh it's like he's it's like the whole thing is like 
he's relaying a piece of gossip. I mean, everything after that first bit about whether there was a murder, I don't know. I wasn't there. (laughs) The rest is all hearsay and speculation uh, on this. Uh, You know, as if as if he's some uh, you know person just gossiping away. Uh, So, so that in itself has a much lighter tone than uh, than we get from the grimness of 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 foot and pri- of foot of pride <laughs> and then you know that line i don't know i wasn't there i was visiting a friend in jail that's almost like an alibi you know for this murder that was or or wasn't I, it's a it's an odd alibi to choose, isn't it? Right. <laughs> yeah, you can't pin it on me because I was I, I was in jail at the time, but but I was visiting a friend. <laughs> you know, it is. I have, it lots, is. I have lots of friends who are criminals, you know. But uh, <laughs> it's very conversational, you know. Yes. When I when I had heard the set was coming out, and I'd heard that there were alternate takes of the song in different forms, I was like, oh, that's really exciting. And when I first queued it up i think it was the acoustic one was the first whatever one was in order of the cd then i listened uh-huh. it's it was startling first of all i didn't realize it would be acoustic and then secondly again it is it's very considering how measured and perfect foot of pride is i mean it's uh-huh. just got that beat to it there's no real melody it's just he's just kind of just, just yeah. you know yeah. hanging the words on the beat yeah, this is very. There's parts where he tries to cram in too many words in any given line, <laughs> like he does. You know, where Miss Dolly plays and their views have been mixed. He's trying, to, and it is very conversational. Yeah. I use that word again, yeah. and that's very startling considering yeah. what I knew of the final version. But also, you know, I mean, uh, that's one of the things he always does, isn't it? He's he's an absolute master at cramming too many words into a line. <laughs> uh, I mean. Uh, uh, he just he's just brilliant at that. Handy Dandy is a wonderful example of this. <laughs> I love on that the, song. <laughs> on the much maligned uh, uh, Under the Red Sky album. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it's just marvellous how he, he does a demonstration of it. And, of course, live in concert, he does that too. You know, he gives you half a line or three quarters of a line, and the musicians have got to the end of that line. And you wonder... When the hell is he going to deliver the rest of that line? And of course, he always he always does, and it's always timed beautifully. Um, but as for as for the uh, conversational tone, yeah, well, it carries on in uh, in the second verse. Can I read that? Sure. He had a brother named Paul hang out at the Cafe Royal. Nice, nice, par- nice rhyme line. there, Paul and yeah. Royal. <laughs> When Miss Dolly plays and the reviews have been where Miss Dolly plays and the reviews have been mixed, well, he's pretty to look at, looking for someone to throw the book at. But you know that he drinks and drinks can be fixed. Sing me one more song about your summer romance. I know you don't know motherless children. Sing me the one about you and Errol Flynn. All that's very chatty, isn't it? It's very <laughs> conversational. And then, and then we get to. Uh, a more severe end to that verse where he goes, uh, in this times of, comp- in these times of compassion where conformities are fashion, say one more stupid thing to me before the final nail is driven in. I mean, that's, that's a more foot of pridey sort of atmosphere, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but then we get the very, uh, the youthful chorus all over again. Now those, some of those internal rhymes are marvelous. Uh, yeah, Paul and, and, uh, Cafe Royal. <laughs> Uh, but he, the way he sings it is more like Cafe Royale, as if there's mm-hmm, an E on, mm-hmm. uh, on the end of it. But uh, 
And then we get the third verse, and the first line is Dr. Silver Spoon from the El- Empress Ball- Ballroom. What a name for a character. Yeah, yeah, like uh, Dr. Filth, I guess, on uh, Desolation Row. Mm-hmm. Dr. Silver Spoon from the Empress Ballroom. He's a retired businessman who feeds off everyone he's touched. He gives money to the church and foundations for research. He's not someone you can play around with too much. But then there's Rosetta Blake, who's been to both sides of the lake. She's rough to look at, but she's righteously something. I think it's Uh, fit. Righteously fit? It probably is, but it could be fake, because otherwise there's nothing to rhyme with fit. Now that's true. (laughs) In the whole verse. And And then we get, she'll feed you coconut bread and spice buns in bed. You won't have to worry about sleeping face down with your head in the plate. Who worries about that? <laughs> uh, it's it's just, it's so unpredictable. Until you know it really well, you have no idea what kind of lion is coming next. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, and yet he pulls it all together so beautifully. And, uh, and then it, it, every bit is linked with the, uh, with the chorus. Um, and then verse four, you get, uh, Ah, so it, this one finishes very cynically. He says, you'll arrange to see your man tonight who tells you some secret things you think might open some doors. Well, now, is he saying now, um, that this is someone who, uh, who wants to manipulate people? Uh, and what, what might these secret things be? He says, uh, how to enter the gates of paradise? No. More like how to go crazy from carrying a burden that's never meant to be yours. From the stage, they'll be doing the bumps and the grinds. A whore will pass the hat, collect a hundred grand and say thanks. <laughs> they say they like to take all this money from sin and build big universities to study in and sing Amazing Grace all the way to the Swiss banks. <laughs> that's so amazing. It is. It's just the most extraordinarily cynical take on on contemporary life, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and of course, there's quite a lot of truth in it. Well, right, yeah, yeah. For yeah. such a grim song, it makes you at least makes me laugh. I'm laughing yes. as you're reading the words because it's it's so clever. The wordplay is so clever that you're yes. laughing at the the skill and the audacity of putting these words in a song, even when he's singing about something. Absolutely. Murders and, you know, stealing money and burying it in yeah. a university. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get, we get even more dark stuff in verse five. We get, they got some serious people out there, man. They can ring your bell and show you how to hold your tongue. They don't come to party, man. They kill babies in the crib and say only the good die young. They don't believe in mercy, and judgment on them is something you'll never see. They can put your face on a postage stamp, turn your home into an armed camp. Any way they want you, that's the way you'll be. Well, well one of the things that strikes me in that verse is that uh, that second line, they can ring your bell and show you how to hold your tongue. That's so. There's such a lot of menace in that. You know, uh, show you how to hold your tongue. I mean, really, that could mean, that could mean any form of, uh, repression. Censorship, uh, op- right. Op- yeah. Oppression. 
They could mean, uh, you know, physically removing your tongue. I mean, you know, it seems to me that's more, more menacing than the line about killing babies in the crib because, mm. you know, that's sort of somehow plainer. Whereas there, there's more resonance of menace in the, in the earlier line. And then that extraordinary way that he suggests these people's power in the end, where they could put your face on a postage stamp or turn your home into an armed camp. Mm. I mean, who can put your face on a postage stamp except the government? Right. And yet, is he talking about the government? Or is it just a, a very Dylan-esque, imaginative uh, couple of different ways of showing how powerful he's saying these people are. Yeah. Well, when you first heard it, when yeah. You first, when you first heard it, I mean, did, did, why, how did it, why did it work so well for you? I mean, was there a, um, a meaning for you that came to your head of what you thought it was about? No, I think it was exactly the thing that you said a minute ago that, uh, that, uh, line by line, I found myself just laughing at the audacity. <laughs> Uh, and, but, but also, as I say, the liveliness of it. Um, but yeah, laughing at the audacity of how he manages to do these things. But, you know, what an imaginative, creative mind he has. And I think a lot of it shows here, you know, from the point of view of, um, uh, of people who feel that he was at his most radical and creative in the 1960s. This could almost come from the 1960s. Mm. It's, uh, it's got that panache. Uh, it's got that way of pulling lines out of nowhere that no one else would dream up, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, the last line, the last verse, I mean, I just, it, it's, uh, the expressiveness in his voice here. The words go, Yes, I loved him too. I can see him, still see him in my mind climbing up that hill, which, you know, as a start, um, it suggests that maybe we're talking about Jesus, that it's too late, too late to bring him back. Mm. Uh, uh, and, you know, he says, I can still see it in my mind. Uh, I can still see him in my mind climbing up that hill. You know, that, that's claiming a very clear memory. And then he completely uh, demolishes it <laughs> immediately by saying, or oh, was it a wall? I don't recall. It don't matter at all. I, that, that, those three lines. <laughs> yes. I wish he had retained that for foot of pride. I love that. So, or was it a wall? I don't recall. It don't matter at all. That is just, I love that yeah. so much. <laughs> and then, and then he, and then he adds on, it don't matter at all, honey. And it never will. Finally rhyming something with that climbing up that hill. <laughs> oh, just fantastic. Uh, and then the last four lines. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty unclear about what some of that means. Just the dust of fools that have left their mark in spades. I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. From now on, this will be where you're from. Let the dead bury the dead. Your time will come. Feel that hot iron glowing now as you raise the shades. I don't know what that might, line means either. I mean, let the bury, let the dead bury the dead, of course, is Jesus in, from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and he's using dead there in two different ways, a figurative use first and then a literal use. Mm -hmm. What he means by, what Jesus means by let the dead bury the dead 
is let the people who are who should be dead to you now bury the actual dead, the literal dead. I mean, that's why that's why he's rebuking these people who want to go and bury their father uh, instead of immediately following him. They should be dead to you. I mean, it's rather heartless, you know, uh, on Jesus's part, in my personal opinion. <laughs> but uh, but that's you know that's that's what we have in this line. Let the dead bury the dead. We have the figurative use of the dead, people who are dead to you, and then let those let those people who don't matter anymore bury the physically dead. Physically bury the the dead. Um, well, now you know I don't. I find the rest of that half verse, that last half verse, fairly opaque. But, uh, but I, I do think that throwing in that quite famous quote from Jesus Christ is, um, is a sort of reminder that, uh, that he might be singing about Jesus. Hmm. Too late to bring him back. Don't you think? Well, that, okay. Well, see, that's, I, I wanted to mention, I wanted to bring this up because when else am I going to have the chance to, to talk to someone like you with my cockamamie theory as to what this song is about? Because, okay. <laughs> because as, as we talk about on the show, uh, you know, and Bob himself, I think would, would, uh, would underscore this, that there is no one correct meaning. It's whatever it is. If, uh, you know, how the song, how you interpret the song. Then that's what the song's about because everyone's going to interpret things differently. And so any, you know, for the most part, any theory could be, uh, could be quote unquote correct. So I've been living with foot of pride all these years, ever since the bootleg series came out. And I was never able to really understand what it was about. Obviously it was about a den of iniquity and, and the, you know, the, the world has, the world has fallen and, and all that stuff. And I was like, okay. And you said it is a very grim song. It's a very grim song, but I never fully had a handle on what I thought it meant. Sure. And then I got these versions and then a, a, a meaning started seeping into my brain because I was like, okay, I see with these other versions, what he was trying to get at and watching it morph from this song into another song. And again, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so in my mind, this is what for me, this song is about. And I, I am, I am really taking myself out on a limb because I might be completely crazy and I'm going to have Michael Gray telling me I am, which is embarrassing, but we'll do this. So in my mind, knowing the, knowing the context of the song, right? He's writing this in 1982, 83. He's coming out of his born again period. Yeah. That the song is about how he is now, he's gone through the born again period. He is now on the other side of it. And He has, he's saying it is too late to bring it back. He's talking about himself. He is saying, I was a disciple of all this very stringently for a couple of years, but I have become disillusioned because of very, maybe he's gotten to see the inner workings of organized religion. Again, writing in 1982, this is right in the the, the thick of the Reagan years where Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, consciously let the moral majority have a say in government and, and all the corruption that that led to. And so this is a guy who is, has come out the other side and he is disillusioned with the religion that he espoused so fervently for a couple of years. And he put his career out on the line for this kind of thing. And he's mad. And he's saying it's when he says the hymn is him. He's like, it's too late to bring me back. 
It's too late. It's too late. And that the line that that it's in Foot of Pride, but the fact that it he retained it through all these versions is the Harry carry a burden too heavy to be yours. I mean, that's a guy who's been called the voice of his generation. He doesn't want that. He's never wanted that. He's never, yeah. that's a burden. He can't, what normal person could, could go through life with that tag on them. Sure. And, and so to me, it's like, he is, he's, that's what the song is about. It's a guy that has realized this thing that I went all the way in on, I am now disillusioned about. And again, not so much the religiosity because he's continued to quote the Bible and quote God and thank God all these years later in speeches and, and when he gets awards and he says, you know, go with God and all these kinds of things. But the organized religion part of it, he's disgusted yeah. with it. And that's what this song, it, to me, that's what the song's about now. Okay. Well, I, I, uh, I wouldn't say you were wrong uh, <laughs> at all. Uh, and Good. basically, okay. and basically, I, uh, you know, I try to generally speaking avoid saying this song is about A or sure. B or C, sure. um, because that's kind of getting close to being an interpreter. Right. I think of myself as a critic. Right. And, and as a critic, it seems to me my job is to uh, notice things, specifics. Pay close attention to the track, the equivalent of the text, mm -hmm. just as I was trained to do with, you know, the Romantic Poets or Middlemarch by George Eliot when I was a student. The job of the critic seems to me just to do that, to pay attention, to notice things closely, uh, and, and to see how things inner somebody's work connect to each other to other things uh and uh and also then in 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 sort of in writing it in a book to be in conversation with your reader and to be saying you say something and then you say this is so isn't it inviting either agreement or disagreement mm. well now the best critics are those who are very clear, but they have to be clear without, while avoiding, while avoiding being too opinionated. It's no, you know, there are a whole load of critics in Britain in the, in the early part of the 20th century who, uh, who just sort of faffed around being polite about works of literature because it was a sort of gentlemanly thing to do. And then there were, then there were specific Critics like F. R. Leavis, uh, Cambridge, controversial Cambridge guy, who uh, who was very clear in what he was saying, and and uh, and so effective in his clarity that he uh, he, for example, uh, uh, made people think. Well, maybe D. H. Lawrence is a great novelist. You know, D. H. Lawrence himself he wrote uh, he wrote a great critical study. Um, people think of him as this very kind of wild, mad, uh, uh, super romantic type, uh, always talking about soul and blood and so on. But he wrote, uh, he wrote a great study of American literature. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things that did for the public was to bring Walt Whitman back to the attention of the American public. Um, he had been, 
largely shoveled aside and forgotten about. Mm. Uh, uh, so, you know, a, a critic can do big stuff right. <laughs> uh, uh, for an artist. Uh, but, and, you know, other people have been critics and creative artists as well, not just Lawrence G.S. Eliot. He uh, spent just as much time on his critical essays as he did on uh, uh, his poetry or his plays. Um, I'm not quite sure where this takes us <laughs> in, in terms of interpreting uh, or, or discussing too late, but um, but anyway, what I'm saying is I wouldn't say you were wrong about that. That's quite interesting. <laughs> That's all I can hope for. But uh, but it's uh, but it does sort of require you to decide what's going on in Bob's head, and right, I do try to avoid doing that. Right, and it does presuppose knowing the history of his life, which he yes. can't. Which he can't assume the listener knows because you don't want to assume that the listener is following his life in granular detail like that. And it's only nerds like me that do, but I just, it's, (laughs) but I mean, it's, I, you know, I mean, some songs, whether they're Dylan songs or or other songs, I don't know what they're about, but they're just, they just sound nice or they sound menacing or, and that's, and that's okay. That's perfectly fine. And as I've said on the show before, some of these, some Bob songs, I have no idea what they mean. And I still enjoy them and I can enjoy them on that level. And I don't go looking for meanings. I just let it, it either percolates or it doesn't. And uh-huh. so, like I said, for, for, for the, the bootleg series came out in 91, I think 92. So you're uh-huh. talking 30 years since then for 30 years. I, I just it was like, okay, foot of pride. I don't know what it's about. It sounds great. I wish it had made the record. It's menacing. It's creepy. Great. And then it was only after these versions that I started going, wait a minute. Okay. This makes sense to me of what this uh-huh. could be. Um, and I also uh-huh. love, I do want to mention, I love that he mentions in this two different songs in this period. He mentions Errol Flynn. Yes. Partly maybe just because the rhyme is good. Errol Flynn is easy to rhyme to, but you know, we're talking about that conversational tone and you said like the gossipy tone for people who don't know Errol Flynn got around and fathered <laughs> many children in and out yeah. of wedlock. And yeah. I have to wonder if it was Bob is reading a book about Errol. We know Bob loves old movies that yeah. he read a book about Errol Flynn. It just was like, Oh, that's kind of a fun thing to throw in. <laughs> somebody yeah. out there yeah. having an affair with Errol Flynn. Yes. I, I, I remembered uh, that he, that he had mentioned er- Errol Flynn before mm-hmm. in, in the same sort of period. Uh, um, and and it does seem a bit random in in too late. Uh, it seems thrown in a bit random, but that's another weird thing in the lyric, isn't it? I mean, in the detail of the lyric, he says, uh, "Sing me another song about your summer romance." Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next line is, "I know you don't know motherless children." Well, that's a non sequitur, isn't it? Right. I mean, motherless, <laughs> yeah. motherless children could be described in many ways, but it could not be called a song about a summer romance. Uh, um, and then we get the Errol Flynn song. Uh, by the way, um, you, do you know that video where uh, somebody has put up a, a, a video on YouTube of Too Late and has put the words? Yes. Yeah, you see it typed through. out on the paper as it's going on. Okay. Yeah. There's a couple of, uh, the, I mean, they, I must say the punctuation is appalling in that. In that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that aside, I was grateful for them putting the words up. 
Um, I mean, I didn't take them today from from that version, but uh, mm. but there are a couple of delightful things in that version. Um, mistakes. One of them's delightful anyway. One is just simply that uh, they said drinks can't be fixed, whereas quite clearly it's drinks can be fixed. Mm-hmm. But the other one is um, they misheard motherless children as marvelous children. Oh well, yeah, no, that's and and that's just a beautiful line, isn't it? I know you don't know marvelous children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so no, I don't know. Uh, you know, when I say he might be talking about Jesus here, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to say he is. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say uh, Bob still had a lot of Jesus on his mind. Although clearly, you know. He did at that at this point, and you know why is the in, why is the album called Infidels if uh, <laughs> if it's not you know? <laughs> I love that story about how randomly it was called Infidels. That's just amazing. Oh yeah, to me. What, what story was that? Oh well, it's the the story about that the original title, of course, was going to be Surviving in a Ruthless World. Yeah, that's why Terry names his book that and. Somebody in Bob's camp just said, "Well, you know, your last four records have started with S." Yes, and he, yes, and he just went. And that. he just yes. went. Oh, yeah, let's not do that then. And you're like, us us nerds, you know, like to <laughs> derive every utterance from his mouth as having such meaning, and it must be. But yeah. and it's like, no, it's just no. I don't want to. Oh, okay, I don't want to keep doing S records. Um, infidels. Yeah. How's that? You know, like. That's it. Yeah. That's all that it took with some guy who just mentioned it to him. Uh, <laughs> yes. I really yeah. want to ask you about the, um, the bit about, or was it a wall? I don't recall. It don't matter at all. Because again, I love those, that, that rhyme uh, is so marvelous. And, yes, uh, and his tone of voice is so seductive and sneaky at the same oh, time. It's so good. But it's the, but it said what leads up to it is I still see him in my, in my mind climbing up that hill. Which to me, you, you you said you thought it was a reference to. G- I figured it was Sisyphus, who's uh-huh. pushing the rock up the hill. Which again made right. me think it's Bob talking about himself, carrying a, guy, a burden too heavy to be yours, carrying a burden too heavy to be yours. But I mean, when he says I, climbing up that hill, or was it a wall? <laughs> yes. like, those two lines don't make any sense. You're climbing no. up a hill, or was it a wall? You can't climb. Can you climb up a? I guess you can climb up a wall. I guess sure. right? Is that? Yeah. But no, I mean. He's immediately just undercutting the claim that yeah. he still remembers <laughs> the climbing up the hill, you know. And when when you hear that the first time, it's such a it's such a delight, such an off the wall surprise. Sorry, off the wall, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, unintentional. Um, it's such a delightful surprise to find him immediately undercutting that. Uh, I can remember, blah blah, you know. Oh, or was it a wall? I don't recall. It don't matter at all, honey. <laughs> and it never so will. That's <laughs> so fantastic. Um, yes. This, this, to me, this song is like one of like the great Dylan songs that is populated with characters. He gives these people just one Dr. Silver Spoon. It yeah. evokes so much, you know, of like, oh, he's a healer, but he's coming from, a rich background, you know, maybe that guy. And then you've got Miss Dolly, which again, sort of, you know, like, okay, that yeah. sounds, she sounds a little like a madam, a little bit, yeah. kind of. Yeah. But then you've got and who's Rosetta, Rosetta Blake. Uh, who is Rosetta Blake? Yeah. Then, then it's just like a regular name of a person, Rosetta Blake. I'm like, yeah. okay, okay. What is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And it reminds me, uh, both in terms of the, 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 you know, of course, Desolation Row is filled with characters. But this song, the, this reminded me a lot of, of Dignity, because Dignity is filled with characters. And yeah. Dignity starts with a murder. Somebody got murdered on New Year's Eve, and Dignity was the first to leave. And this song opens with some sort of crime. And so to me, that has that similar Maybe. thematic feeling to it of like, there's all some, some, there's some event that happens at the beginning of the song and then all these characters are reacting to it. And this narrator is yeah. following them all. And so, and yeah. I love dignity. So to me, it's like, this is, this yes. is just a, a thing I love that he does. But having said, whether there was a murder, he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. He immediately says, I wasn't there. Right. <laughs> and then he, and then he contradicts that by saying there were just two women at the scene at the time. How does he know he wasn't there? He was visiting a friend in jail, you know? There were just two women at the scene at the time, uh, and they didn't they didn't see anything because they were both wearing veils. Uh, well, that's a weird line too, because uh, you know it's perfectly possible to wear a veil and still see things, right? Right. Uh, and 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 they're sort of random, aren't they? You get you get a visual image of these two women, um, and then they then they're gone. They're, there's no further mention of them. And unless some of these other named women may have been the same people, but I don't think so, and I don't think it's worth speculating. <laughs> now, you know, the acoustic version um, it, that never no. would have made the album because it just no. sonic sonically. I mean, he's done that before. He has put acoustic songs on all electric albums. Certainly, he's done that before. Highway sixty one and Empire Burlesque and things like that. And uh, yeah. So, but I can't imagine that the acoustic version was ever up for real consideration. That it, no. you know, so they would have it's had much to add shorter as well, isn't it? Yeah, and they would have had to add you know electric guitars and things like that. And so, what what is it about? Is it just that the is it the tune or is it just the tone that you feel like Foot of Pride it loses you versus versus this earlier uh, pr- approach to it? Yeah, I think I think. Um... I think I've just paid it a great deal less attention than you have, but um, but, but that's because you know I was never drawn to it. Mm-hmm. I sort of felt that yes, it's uh, it's a heavy song, it's um, it's a serious song, but um, I'm not going to enjoy it. Just just tonally, just the the the, the yeah. feeling of it, the sort yeah, of cynicalness yeah, of it. Yeah. It's like you know I don't like um, I don't like much on. Uh, on time out of mind for the same reason, you know. Mm. I uh, 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 told Irons Bound, please, when I used to go and see him a lot in concert, and he would sing that. I would, I would just wish he didn't. <laughs> just too grim a song for you. It's just, uh, it just doesn't do anything for me. It, gotcha. um, it doesn't engage me, and I don't kind of believe it. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that's that's always been my problem with Time Out of Mind. Is you know, it's got seems to me it's got four great songs on it, and and aside from those, uh, a great deal of his kind of claim to enormous gloom is is not creatively achieved. It's just claimed. I, well, now that you said it, what not to get off this off the subject of what are the four great songs in your mind to Time oh, Out of Mind? Uh, Oh well, Highlands. Okay. Uh, not dark yet. Okay. Trying to get to heaven. Mm-hmm. And um, and what's the other one? <laughs> the one about blues all around my head. Oh, standing in the doorway. 
standing in the doorway. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, so, and, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, well, I mean, in terms of, you just mentioned um, seeing Bob live. Uh, this song uh-huh. has been done, unsurprisingly, zero times live. This is unlike Blind Willie McTell, which yeah. he seems to have come around to, where people, you know, it got put out on the bootleg series and then enough people yeah. went, at, you know, went on and on about it that I think he sort of has yeah. grudgingly been like, yeah, I think I got that one wrong. And now it's, you know, he plays it. This just forgot has just been left behind, just completely left behind. And, you know, I'm always fascinated by that, about how he, I mean, no one's ever going to waste time with his interviews asking him about old songs that got left off of albums, I guess. But I wonder, he works on it dozens and literally dozens of times. Yeah. And he just feels like he can't get it. He just can't get it to his satisfaction. Uh And there it goes. And I, you know, I mean, I know Mark Knopfler is the producer and, you know, but Dylan's the ultimate arbiter of what gets on the record but i i would love to know what that relationship was like because i would think as the producer if your artist brings you a work this masterful you're going to just be like no we're going to keep getting this we're going to keep working on this till you get it because this is this is too good to just leave behind but yeah but you know i think i think um at the time mark knopfler was um was a sort of so much a disciple of dylan's Mm -hmm. he wouldn't have he wouldn't have held out for that i mean you know he did uh, he did complain afterwards didn't he that uh that he'd done all these mixes and then dylan took them away and chose the worst yeah <laughs> right and messed fussed around with it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but you know uh it has to be said artists are not the best judges of their work uh and that's partly because they are only aware of the sort of conscious creative stuff that they put into it but any work of art there's a there's a there's a big unconscious element and um and bob doesn't know any more about about that than than you do you know um which is why uh it was the same it was the same with any great artist you know ask them which their best painting is and uh and they choose one that nobody else much likes or whatever right. it might be right you know right. elvis presley thought that um that old shep was just as good as that's all right but he was wrong <laughs> i i saw an interview with paul simon once where he said people would come up to him and say hey your ex song is my favorite song and he would say in his head and he used to apparently tell these people oh that isn't like one of my 50 best songs and then he had that happen to him enough times where he went, I stopped saying that because he's like, it doesn't matter what I think. This yeah. person loves it. <laughs> that's fine. You know, it doesn't okay. matter that I don't think. And I said, obviously, with this and, you know, lay down your weary tune or Blind William McTell or Up to Me or Girl from the Red River Shore. There's the song or Caribbean Wind. My old, to me, my, my favorite example of this. It, he hear there's something he hears in his head and he can't yeah. get to it. And so therefore to him there off it goes and yes. meanwhile the rest of us are like what are you t- how could you know yes yes absolutely <laughs> but you know i mean this is uh this is we're very lucky that we get all this unreleased stuff oh my i mean it does become released doesn't it either not only on the bootleg series but you know before there were official bootlegs there were there were loads of unofficial bootlegs mm-hmm. um and um some of those bootleggers make pretty good stuff, you know. 
but um but for Bob's point, you know, this is the if if we never heard these things because they were really thrown away, okay, we would lose them. But but that's the price we would be paying for the extraordinary speed with which he is inspired. Uh uh and, and you know, his impatience is part of what creates the best stuff. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we don't agree with him about some of that stuff is is really, is, it's our problem, not his. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a uh, perfect way to end this. I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show to talk to me about this. This is just so oh, exciting. It, uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, well, thank you very much. So before we end, though, I do okay. want to plug again that, of course, it's your book, Song and Dance Band, is now back in print and it's available. Uh, is it available on your website or should it, would you want to prefer people to get it uh, just at their local bookshops or Amazon or whatever? Uh, yeah, I, it's not available on my website gotcha. because okay. uh, basically I'm in France and um, I live in southwest France and the book is published in New York. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Uh, so, you know, Amazon is probably the quickest way to get it, but... Um, it's got it's got an ISBN number, and so people can order it from. You can order from local bookstores, absolutely. Sure, and that absolutely. would be a nicer way to do it. But let me just say that um, the the it's the same text as in Song and Dance Man Three, mm-hmm. the art of Bob Dylan, which came out right at the end of the twentieth century, two thousand, and um, and that was a nine hundred plus page book. Whew. Uh, uh, and so that's a bit heavy for some people, possibly <laughs> in more senses than one. Uh, and um, uh, so what we've done this time is we've split it into three, three volumes. Right. Volume one is out now. It's volume one is uh, uh, called Language and Tradition. Right. Uh, and um, and then volume two uh, basically looks at the albums of the 1980s. And volume three basically looks at the albums of the nineties. Um, and they will be out later in the year. But so volume one is what you should be getting right now. Right. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's got a very nice cover. It's got a nicely designed spine. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. Uh, and along the top, it says 50th anniversary series because the first time my book was published was way back. In 1972 to three. Wow. 72 in the UK, 73 in the USA and Japan. So yeah, it is, it is, some of it is 50 years old, although most of it uh, is from later editions than that. The the 2000 edition was the most solid one. And what, and what that does include, and therefore there's a lot of it in this volume is, um, is the footnote, the copious footnotes that I put in commenting on the first edition, if you like. The chapters that are basically from the very first edition are now festooned with footnotes in which I say, well, I don't really agree with this anymore. So the footnotes are quite fun, which is not, um, 
not something people tend to assume about footnotes. <laughs> That's true. I should do that with my old episodes. I go back and stick in my own commentary. But, oh, why did I say that? That's wrong. Um, uh, well, again, anyway, the, the book belongs on any shelf, uh, any Bob shelf of any uh, you know, bookshelf of any Bob fan. I have my Bob bookshelf to the left of me here. And so like I said, I'm looking forward to, to getting the new edition. Before we sign off, though, I have to, I, this is my chance. I have to ask you, I have a standard exit question for all of my guests uh, that I like to ask. And so I, I'm really dying to find out what you would say to this. And the question is this, if there is any Bob Dylan recording session that you could sit in on, and it could be a record, theme time radio hour, his audio books, anything where he's sitting in front of a microphone that you could sit in on, not to change, not to affect, but just be a fly on the wall for what do you, do you have like a number one choice that you would want to sit in on a watch be created in front of you? Maybe well gone wrong. That's an interesting choice out of all the records. Well, I mean, I love that record, but why do you say that? Well, I'd just be sitting there with Bob, wouldn't I? <laughs> that's true. You and the <laughs> Debbie Gold or whoever is recording. Yeah. That's true. That You would get but the I most alone time. But also, I do think it's a very, very fine album. And it is. Uh, uh, I, I love both of those 1990s acoustic albums. Me too. And I thought, it, I thought it was a great thing for him to do. And so, yeah, well gone wrong. I would, I would love to have been there when he recorded Love Henry, for example. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just perfect. It's perfect. Is that why the, the, the image of Bob on the covers of your book now are, are from the world gone wrong video? That's the video he did for Blood in My Eyes. Cause that's the, uh, that's well, he's got uh, the top hat and, and well, he's wearing a top hat. So that just goes with the title song and dance man. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, I've always put, uh, at the front of the book. Uh, I think of myself as just a song and dance man, Bob Dylan, 1965. And then underneath, never trust the artist, trust the tale, D.H. Lawrence, 1923. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, that, that's a fantastic answer. That, some people go for the basement tapes because they get to spend three months with him. Some people, uh, you know, they all have their own criteria, but that's that's an interesting idea that there's really not going to be that many chances where you have to just be in the room with just the guy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and yeah, that's could, true. That that would make acoustic be, guitar. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, that would be remarkable. Well, again, Michael, uh, thank you for doing this. It was a real honor for you to to come by and and get a chance to talk with you. So thank you so much for doing this. I, I really very much appreciate it. Pleasure. All right. So, of course, everybody, you can find the show over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan and all the back episodes are available on our website, fmpods.com. And please, if you haven't yet, subscribe to Pod Dylan Plus. You get bonus content on a bunch of other great things and you help support the show and, and keep it going. So please, if you haven't yet, go to fmpods.com or you can go on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the network and uh, you'll be helping supporting Pod Dylan. So that is going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening and we will see you later. Bye. Uh, shall I? Ask yes, you go ahead, Dorothy. Excuse me. Dorothy. Are you married? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> five down and five to go, Miss Francis. There was laughter when you said you were married. Is <laughs> is that because you have been much married? <laughs> uh, I've had been times. Right. Go ahead, Bennett. Have you ever appeared on the panel of this show? Yes. Errol Flynn? Yes. <laughs>